I want to introduce my wife, Pat. She's, uh, you going to stand up? <laughs> and uh, we've really enjoyed getting to know Gary and Nancy over the years. We even went on a fishing trip with them. And I could tell you lots of stories about Pat and Nancy out in a canoe fishing. Uh, it was pretty funny. But uh, I'll spare you that story this morning. But I want to give you a little background on where Pat and I have come from. As Gary mentioned, um, we were Peace Corps volunteers, and uh, that's a volunteer organization with the U.S. government. And uh, we we got accepted to the Peace Corps program back in 1971 and went as volunteers to the Philippine Islands with the idea that we could help poor people. I was a fishery biologist, and, and my wife was working with their nutrition program and feeding program for malnourished uh, children and, and uh, mothers. And uh, just to make a long story short, we were not believers at the time, and uh, here we were, Peace Corps volunteers, there to help the poor people of this country and uh, very needy areas. And we found out very quickly through lots of different difficulties we faced as volunteers, especially sickness and being involved in a major flood where we had to leave our home and, you know, in waste deep water and, and, uh, through a lot of different problems that, uh, we really didn't like being there anymore. And we found out we didn't really like Filipino people. And we didn't like their food, their culture, the way they cheated us in the markets. We didn't like the bus rides on the wooden seat buses. and We didn't like the, the filth the, everywhere that you went, the garbage, the smells of poverty all around us. And, and we were soon realize that we really didn't have a love for these people that we thought we could help. In fact, we began to despise even the people themselves and being in this country. My wife, Pat, uh, she isn't real big. She weighed about 105 pounds when we went into Peace Corps. She went down to 73 pounds uh, with a, a disease. They were treating her with 19 different drugs at one time and trying to cure her. But through all of this, we, we met a little family uh, in, in a place that we relocated to after a major flood. And uh, I can't share the whole story, but it was through a, a little group of children. They were like four, five, six, and nine years old. Three little boys and a little girl. And they were squatters. They lived in a little grass hut. Um, on some borrowed land that they just put their hut up on. And uh, uh, they basically, we thought, tormented us. Every time we came by their little hut, the little kids would chase us down the road saying, Peace man, peace man, this is the Vietnam War era. And my name is Joe, but every white person in the Philippines was G.I. Joe. So it was, hi, Joe, peace man, Americano, peace man, and screaming at the top of their lungs. And we weren't believers, you know, and we, we put up with it for a long time. We uh, thought that these little kids, you know, didn't know any better. And we'd yell at them, tell them our real names. I, my name was Jose to them. And, uh, and 
But this went on for several months, probably. And my wife and I are very private people. We, uh, before we were believers, we we just kept to ourselves. And these little kids would bring out the whole village. The, every time we came into the village, everybody would hear these kids screaming and say, oh, the Americans are coming back. And we were the only white faces there, so they'd come out and check our bags from the market and see what we bought, how much we bought, and how much we paid for everything. And they, and we just, you know, hated it. You know, we wanted to just sneak in back, get into our home and, and hide out. And the kids would sit by the windows like that and look in with their little snot-encrusted noses and dirty clothes. The boys only wore T-shirts, no pants. I mean... I wouldn't recommend that here in, you know, in uh, Illinois or Minnesota or anything. But they, that's all the clothes they had. One t-shirt for each boy and one little dress for the little girl. And the dress was full of holes all the way down. The mother dressed the same way. We never saw them change clothes in months. And they were in deep, deep poverty. They cooked in a little pot out on a fire outside. And it was... Christmas time, that time of year, and Pat and I were really feeling that, you know, everybody had forsaken us. No Christmas cards, no gifts. Here we were in a tropical land, you know, 90-some degrees, palm trees. It didn't seem like Christmas. And and we were pretty shook up with this little family, you know, always bothering us. And, um, and we were really, I think, in depression. I didn't know what depression was back then, but, you know, we got into a state where we didn't like our job, we didn't like being there. Every time we saw a jet plane go over, we wished we were on it and going back home, but we didn't want to be hypocrites because we told everybody, we're going to help the poor, you know, overseas, and we're going to really, you know, reach out to them and, and be good to them and uh, do something for people the less fortunate and here we found ourselves hating the poor, hating poverty, hating the Philippines, hating the government. And uh, But this little family, you know, was just another thorn in the side, we felt. And one day I said to Pat, I said, you know what, I got a solution to our problems. And you watch when these kids come running out because we could not pass their house. It was the only little road into our place and without them coming coming out, and they came running out all like the Pied Piper, you know, they come running behind you screaming at the top of their lungs, and and uh, I stopped them that day, and I said to them, I, in their language, I said, you know, if you children ever come out again, and say, peace man, Kano, hi Joe, hi Joe, I said, I'm going to kill one of you. Now, this isn't in the Peace Corps manual, this is this is something I made up. But I, I said to Pat, I said, you know, I, I've got to do something. And I grabbed those little kids and I screamed at them. And I said, if you ever come out, peace, go, peace, man, you know, and all this high Joe stuff again, I'm going to kill one of you. And uh, Pat's looking at me like I'm going nuts. And these kids are sort of scared and run home. And uh, I said, yeah, I think I, I found the solution. So we walked by their house the next day, and the kids never came out of the house. And I'm real proud of myself, you know, that I scared them to death. Uh, little squirts, you know. And uh, Pat, 
was wondering about it. But when we came back home that afternoon, the mother of that house saw us coming and pushed all the kids down the little ladder. You know, their house was up off the ground about this high and there was a little ladder down to the ground. She pushed them all out one at a time, like, go get them. And the kids came running out, hi, Joe, hi, Connell, peace, man. And I said to Pat, well, I'm a man of my word, I have to kill one of them. And I took off running, and the kids scattered like rabbits, and I chased the littlest guy all the way down to the river, four years old, you know, with his little T-shirt on, and chased him right down to the edge of the river. And I grabbed him, and I shook him, and I said, I told you I was going to kill you. And he was crying and bawling, and, and uh, I was yelling at him, why do you come out saying, Connell, peace man, you know, I hate that, I don't want you to do that. And, and he was scared to death, he thought for sure he's dead, you know. And... uh I started talking to myself, saying, Joe, you're nuts. You're going crazy, you know. Here are these little kids, you're scaring them to death. And, and uh, I said, you got to really start thinking about what you're doing. And uh, But we were so much into that state of depression and culture shock that I really didn't know what I was doing, I don't think. And I let the little kid go, and Pat and I went home, and, and it was a day or so before Christmas, and my wife decided with our little house girl, we had a little a 16-year-old girl working with us, and she they went to the market and bought a few things for the kids. She bought them some T-shirts and a little dress and bought a dress for the mother and then baked a bunch of cookies and things for Christmas, and they wrapped them all up. And then it was that Christmas Eve, she's sitting there wrapping these gifts up and got them all done. And I'm sitting there drinking my normal beer that I had every day and sitting there thinking how sad it was to be a Peace Corps volunteer. And nobody cared and we're risking our lives and, and we don't like it here and we hate it. And uh, little, uh, my wife says to me, Joe, can we take these little gifts over to that poor squatter family down the road? And I said, absolutely not. We're not going out down the road. The neighbors will see the rich Americans, the little gifts for the poor people. I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I hate them kids. And so now it's Christmas Eve with two girls crying, you know, in the house. It's becoming a nicer Christmas, you know, all the time. And... uh so here they are mad at me and crying that we won't I won't take the gifts over to these poor people's home and I'm sitting there drinking my beer thinking, you know, man, this is a mess. And I started to hear Christmas carolers come down the road. And little Filipino kids, you could maybe you kids might want to make some money at Christmas. This is a good idea. Two weeks before Christmas, they get a coffee can and they get a little group together and sing Christmas carols and then they shake the coins in there and come to their do your door and you're supposed to put money in there. And this goes on for a whole month, two weeks before, two weeks after Christmas. And I heard these kids singing and I was sitting there and they were singing joy to the world and I was sitting there thinking, joy? I don't have any joy. And they were saying, singing things like peace on earth, goodwill to men. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I don't have any peace in my heart. I don't have any goodwill towards men, for sure. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, what what is all this about? And uh, 
I said to Pat, if those Christmas carolers come to the door, let me go talk to them because I'm going to yell at them and tell them they shouldn't commercialize Christmas and make money on singing Christmas carols. I was so fed up with the whole thing. But we heard a little knock at the door, and that little nine-year-old girl, any nine-year-old girls in here? There we go. Could you stand up a minute? A little girl like that, dressed in a ragged little dress, comes to our little door, and I sort of was looking through the screen door at her, and she had a big bag of oranges in her hand, a plastic bag. And the first thought in my mind was, she wants to sell me oranges, and we can't afford oranges. We were making $75 a month, and you can sit down. <laughs> and and uh, I said, oranges were about a dollar a piece. And we said, you know, I was thinking, i got to just tell her I can't buy any oranges. And I opened the door, and she smiled and just handed me the bag of oranges, and then took off running down the sidewalk because I was the one that almost killed her brother, you know. And uh, Pat and I at that time were totally devastated, broken. Here this poor family had come to our house before we could give them a gift or do anything, and gave us a gift at Christmas when no one else had. And we got down on our knees. We didn't know the words born again. We didn't understand what salvation was. We didn't know what accepting Jesus was. All we knew was that our hearts was full of darkness and hatred and no love. And, and we repented. We said, God, you got to change us. We want to live for you 100%. And it was an instantaneous conversion of both of us. It was so miraculous that after we got off our knees, Pat said, can we take the gifts over to these children? I said, sure, why not? You know, I mean, I was totally changed. And we went over there, but it was late already. It was dark, and the house was totally dark. And Pat knocked on the door, and the lady came to the door and looked down the ladder and said, what do you want? And we said, well, it's Christmas Eve. And we want to sing you a couple songs, and we have a note. We didn't shake a candle, but we wanted to sing a couple songs. And we said, we have some gifts for the children. And she looked at us, she said, well, my house is very dirty and very small, but if you want to come in, you can come in. It was a seven-by-seven house, seven feet by seven feet, inside bamboo slat floor. The little kids were laying on a little mat on the floor with no blanket, all four of them side by side, sleeping. And she pulled out a a little bench about that high, sat it in the middle of the floor, and had a little kerosene uh, wick in, in a can and lit it and put it in the middle of that floor. And we sat on that bamboo floor and sang them some Christmas carols. And then we gave her the gifts uh, for herself and uh, things Pat had baked and stuff. And then she said, what are the other boxes? We said, those are for the children tomorrow morning for Christmas. And she said, give them to me. So we gave them to her and she tore them all open. And she pulled out the little t-shirts and laid them. Pat bought three t-shirts for the little boys. I said she should have bought shorts. It would have been a little better. But she bought three t-shirts because that's her wardrobe. Laid them on the, and the mother laid them out on the little boys and then the little dress on the little girl while they slept. And she looked at us and she said, it must be God. And, uh, we were, I mean, we were like floating 
on a cloud, being brand new Christians, being in that hope with those little children, and knowing, you know, that God had used those little kids to show us who we were. And uh, we went home that night, totally changed. The next day was Christmas. We went to a church service with some friends that invited us to, and every word was alive. And we went out of that church. We started witnessing to the people coming out of church, telling them they had to live for Jesus. That's the only words we knew. We didn't know anything else to tell them. All we knew was what had happened to us. I wasn't going to share that whole story, but I know you have a lot of young kids in this church, and I wouldn't be standing here tonight if it wasn't a little girl like you and three little boys. We found out later that that family were Christians. And it was only because they loved us that the mother sent them out every day, you know, to to talk to us and to, to befriend us. And uh, But it was through little children that won this little couple to the Lord back in the Philippines. And, and it was during that time that God spoke to us later that year uh, that we would be coming back to the Philippines as missionaries. And it was a very definite call, and it was almost ten years to that date that we went back as missionaries to the two tribal people up in the mountains of the Philippines. And we basically we've dedicated our lives to poor families, just like that little family, uh, all over the world. And we work now in twelve different countries of the world uh, in about twenty-two programs that we'll explain this morning. And I think. I'll uh, show that video right now, which will explain the mission of Farms International. And uh, then after that, I, I want to share some thoughts with you from God's Word of, about poverty and, and uh, about the poor and, and about our relationship to them. So can you show that now? Okay. I want to support a mission that truly helps the poor of God's kingdom. I want to partner with a mission that really promotes evangelism. I want the maximum impact from my mission investment. I want to help families and the kids. Farms International is a unique ministry devoted to giving Christian families an opportunity to work and also to give their way out of poverty. <laughs> Strong, giving Christian families are key to a strong, self-supported church. These self-supported churches are effective in evangelism and missions. They also exhibit Christ's love as they reach out to the disadvantaged in their communities. The 21st century requires new approaches to missions. Farms International's loan program is an effective approach to supporting indigenous missions at the grassroots. Scripture teaches us to do good to the poor, but how do we do them good without robbing them of their dignity and creating dependency? There is a way. Farms International helps poor Christians come out of poverty by providing a sustainable, revolving loan program for small businesses and farming. These interest-free loans really empower the poor and also their churches through biblical stewardship. The church is growing the fastest among the poor of this world. Consequently, the mission community faces the dilemma of how to establish strong churches in areas of poverty. Traditionally, 
Western churches, missionaries, and their agencies provided outside funds for pastors' support, church buildings, evangelistic outreaches, etc. However, an honest analysis reveals that this conventional approach creates weak churches because of an unhealthy dependence on foreign support. We believe the local church should be the center for development. Our approach is based on Galatians 6.10 that says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Farms is an opportunity for you to do good unto believers in places of great need. When Christians are set free from poverty, their whole community benefits. Farms International comes alongside missionaries and indigenous missions to provide our unique loan program. Our programs are run by indigenous all-volunteer committees. These committees are trained in the principles of loan administration and in the biblical foundation for the ministry. We allow each committee to write their own loan policy that reflects their unique cultural heritage. This exercise produces true program ownership and success. Loan recipients not only receive a loan, but the training to make their project successful. All of our loans are revolved, so as one family pays back a loan, another family is helped with the same money. This approach is very powerful and multiplies the impact of your mission giving many times over. In addition, wealth and jobs are created locally and the whole economy is helped. Many Christian families needing our help are living on less than a dollar a day. This level of poverty makes it impossible for them to send their children to school, to provide adequate housing or nutrition, or even to pay for basic medical help. Poverty like this leaves little hope for the future, but all that can change with a loan from a farms committee. Nai Lu is a good example of a Christian that was in desperate need before he heard of the Farms International Loan Program. He was a Christian imprisoned because of his faith. After his release from prison, he fled to Thailand. But there he found himself in real poverty because of no way to support himself and had to beg just for his daily needs. Through other believers, he heard about a program that had money from God that Christians could loan to help better their lives. He eventually received a loan from the Farms Committee and began to plant corn, and now after five years, his whole life has turned around. Nailu's life is now filled with thankfulness to God for what he has provided. One of the key features that makes our loan program so effective is the fact that every loan recipient agrees to tie a full 10% of their project profits back into their local church. This is a biblical principle that strengthens individual faith as it promotes true discipleship. Because of this increased giving, churches prosper and grow, pastors are supported, Building programs are funded, and most importantly, we see increased evangelistic outreach and even missions. Yes, it is possible to see strong, supported churches, even in places of tremendous need. Pastor Calvin pastors the Mian Church in northern Thailand. 
His testimony was quite thrilling as he related how the people in his church have become energized and excited by the farm's loan program. Many have taken loans out for farming, coffee plantations, and even fish ponds. And what is exciting for him is what it has done in the lives of his people. They have learned to give and to give generously. They tithe to the church, and this has enabled the church to reach out into three other Mian villages. And now they have three daughter churches because of the increased evangelism that was made possible through the generous giving of the farm's project holders. I want to support my poor brothers and sisters through farms. Me too. I see how farms really supports local evangelism and missions. Farms certainly is a great place to invest my mission support. Farms really help families and the kids. Relate. Farms International may be just what you're looking for. For more information, please visit the Farms International website. Farms International, doing good that is good. Thank you. I think that gives you a good overview of uh, the the farms program, and uh, it's helped a lot of people in a lot of places of the world. And I just want to talk to you this morning about a, a topic that would certainly be close to my heart. It's you know the poor and their God and our responsibility to them. And uh, as you look into the Scripture, you'll find, if you're looking for it, verses on poverty just keep popping out all the way through almost all the books of the Bible. In fact, I was coming home one time. We were coming back on a furlough, and I, I was praying on the airplane, saying, God, what should I share with the churches back home? You know, is there a message you want me to share? And he said, I want you to teach on poverty. And I said, no, that's not a good idea. You, you shouldn't talk to God that way. But I said, you know, I don't want people to think I'm teaching on poverty to raise money, you know, for our mission work. I said, I, I've seen the poor used and abused so much around the world that I don't want to be, you know, in that group of people. And he said, he really spoke to me and said, Joe, I want you to read the scriptures on poverty to learn what my heart is for the poor. I want you to see God's heart for the poor in a way that you never saw it before. And I started to study God's word and I was amazed that there was over 400 references or more than that probably in the scripture that related to poverty or to the poor or how to treat the poor. And it popped up all over. It was just like something I'd never seen before. Almost every uh, scripture I had talked, you know, or I had looked at before in the story, all of a sudden I saw the story uh, or the teaching on poverty that came out uh, over and over again. And uh, God began to teach me many lessons, and I believe He has many uh, lessons for us to uh, learn from His Word, too, on this important subject. And if I asked you this morning what verse comes to mind about poverty in the Bible or about the poor, you might 
think of the words that um, Jesus spoke to his disciples, you know, that you have the poor with you always from uh, Mark 14, verse 7. And that sounds a little bit uh, discouraging. You, you're going to have the poor with you always. But then Jesus added these words to that and said, And whensoever you will, you may do them good. So Jesus was setting forth a command to his disciples and all the believers, us included, that whenever we're willing, we can do them good. Jesus was saying, you only have me with you for a short time, but you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you're willing, you can do them good. And that verse, you know, saying do them good is an important one, but we wonder sometimes what does that mean to do the good uh, do good to the poor. We have a, a young lady here who's going to Chicago and is going to be working and ministering and, and seeing a lot of poor people in, in that place. And uh, you wonder, what, what did Jesus really mean about doing good? And I think I want to turn to Psalms 41. And there's three verses there in this psalm that are amazing verses. When you get deep into them and begin to see what God is saying here to us, uh, we, we learn a great deal about the poor and relating to the poor and what God's heart is for the poor. And let me just read those words starting in verse 1 of Psalms 41. It says, Blessed is he that considereth the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. And a lot of you know that the word blessed might be translated happy. Maybe it is in your, your translation. Uh, but it, it means that God is going to bless them and make them happy if they consider the poor. And then God goes on and says, The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. That's one promise or two promises. He shall be blessed upon the earth. That's another promise. And thou will not deliver him unto the will of his enemies. That's another promise that God makes. And then God says, The Lord will strengthen him upon the bed of languishing. Thou wilt make all his bed even in times you know, of sickness. When we begin to dissect these few verses here, we see some amazing things. God says, Blessed is he that considereth the poor the Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. My wife and I could share all morning long with you about times of trouble we experienced as, as missionaries in the Philippines. We lived in a rebel, communist rebel-controlled area. We also lived in an area that was full of witchcraft and full of uh, the demonic activity. Uh, we sang that song, A Mighty Fortress, and I'm thinking Luther's talking about, you know, this place, the earth is filled with devils, and uh, but one little word will fell them. And I said, how true that was of our experience, you know, in the Philippines. We found that the power of God, the power of the name of Jesus, was overwhelmed the enemies in that area. It was a, such a dark area, no missionary had been able to survive there in the past 18 years. In fact, some missionary families came and stayed one day. Some Another came and stayed two nights. Another came and lasted 14 days. 
and all had to leave because of the darkness of the place, the demonic activity, the witchcraft, uh, the evil. And then on top of that, it was an area, was a hotbed for uh, a war with the Philippine government by these rebel uh, groups that traveled and lived in that area. But you know, God said, if you consider the poor, I'll deliver you in time of trouble. And he did that over and over again. You know, my, my little wife had drug dealers point a pistol at her right in her face in the marketplace in front of all the people of town and said, you're dead, lady. Now, that's a time of trouble. Everybody froze because they feared these drug dealers. And she looked at him and she says, you can kill me if you want to. I know where I'm going. Do you know where you're going? And the, the man said, I'm going to shoot you. And she says, go ahead, shoot me. And he finally backed down and walked away. It had to be God delivering her in time of trouble. The people from town surrounded her and said, well, we apologize so much. We should have tried to defend you. We should have tried to help you, but we were afraid. And they said, but you weren't afraid. See, there's secrets in God's words that are important to us. And God is tying this all together with how we relate to the poor. And God goes on in these verses and He covers almost every aspect of our human life and existence upon this earth. He said, I'll deliver you in time of trouble. I'll preserve you and keep you alive. That's a promise. He said, you'll be blessed upon the earth. I will not deliver you to the will of your enemies. We've, we've seen many of these communist uh, guerrilla soldiers, you know, come to know the Lord over the past, uh, you know, 20 some years since we were missionaries there. And they have come to us as we visited back to the Philippines and come to us and said, you know, we really want to apologize. You know, we had tried to kill you and your family so many times. We had tried to set up things that uh, we would capture you or be able to shoot you or whatever. And we never were able to, but now we're so embarrassed because now we're Christians and we know why you were here and why you came to these mountains. But God said he would deliver us from the will of our enemies. The Lord also says he'll strengthen you in time of sickness and be your, like your nursemaid uh, when you're upon your bed. So almost all aspects of our life are tied to the first verse. Blessed is he that considereth the poor. But that word considereth, you know, we, we think of it, well, we consider whether we're going to buy orange juice or grapefruit juice. You know, we go to the store and we, you know, we consider whether we're going to pay our taxes this year or, or hide out in the woods or whatever. But it means much more than that. The word actually explodes with meaning when you look at this word in the Hebrew that it was originally written in. And it's an action word. It, it means to act. But it means to act circumspectly. That's a big word. But it means to look at all sides of the problem of the poor. Blessed is he that considers the poor. You're going to look at their situation. You know, we've all seen guys with the little cardboard signs and standing out on the corner saying, you know, uh, I need money for food or something like that. Well, we look at that and we go, you know, I'd love to help him if he really needs food. 
but we don't have time to look circumspectly around his whole life and look at the situations. Why is he standing out on the street, you know, uh, asking for money? Maybe he wants money for some, some drug money or some alcohol. We're not sure what the problem is because we haven't really looked at him uh, and considered his situation like God asks us to. It also means to be prudent. That means to, to look at this person's life and to act with wisdom. How can I really help this person? Really help this person? Sure, I could throw a $5 bill in a basket or, you know, buy him a hamburger at McDonald's or whatever. You know, but how would God really want me to act with wisdom? And how would God want me to look at the whole picture? And so there's much more in helping, uh, learning to help the poor than just giving them something. You know, one thing the Peace Corps taught Pat and I, uh, it was a very interesting thing because there's a U.S. government program and all we hear about is budget overruns and deficit spending and, and debt. Peace Corps told us something. If you want to be a good volunteer, never give anything away, only yourself. Never give anything away to your neighbors or anything. It'll only create jealousy. It'll create problems. But if you give yourself away, you'll have lifelong friends. And we've gone back to the same uh, places we lived as volunteers back in 1971-72 and visited those same uh, little uh, neighborhoods. And the people come running out like they're our long-lost friends. But we learned that if we gave ourselves away, you know, it would be much better than giving them something. You know, in fact, giving sometimes uh, may, be, may prolong their problem. It, it may be something that uh, prolongs uh, their poverty. Uh, poverty is an ugly thing. It's a heart-wrenching thing. Uh, it can paralyze us. Uh, you see someone really poor and you sort of want to walk on the other side of the street or the other side of the road or not get involved with them, not get into their home. You know, we might choose to ignore the poor or avoid the poor. But what does the Scripture say? We see this familiar Scripture in, uh, in James uh, chapter 1. Um, and it says here, pure religion, you know, oops, <laughs> in the wrong place. James chapter 1, in verse 22, it says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man beholding him, his natural face in a glass. And for he beholdeth himself and goeth away and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not forget, a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed." And he said, if any man among you seemeth to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, he deceiveth his own heart. This man's religion is vain. 
And then he says these words that are so familiar, pure religion and undefiled before God the Father uh, is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Again, it's an action word. Visit the fatherless and the widows and those people in, in their time of affliction. You know, the poor serve us in a very special way. It almost seems um, sad to say those things, but we need the poor. You know, they reveal the deep issues of our hearts in a way that almost nothing else can. They show us whether we practice pure religion, undefiled, or something much less in our life. Just like Pat and I needed that poor family to show us the deep issues of our heart, all of us, when we're confronted by poverty, it shows us really who we are. Are we really like Jesus? Or do we just talk like Jesus? Are we really like Him? Do we visit the fatherless, the widow, the poor, uh, the destitute? You know, we have that story in John chapter 12, and, uh, but it's, it's about Judas uh, complaining that that ointment that was wasted on Jesus, he felt, could have been sold and given to the poor. Remember that story? He said, why wasn't this sold and it could have been given to the poor? And then we have the little verse in there that says, it's not that he cared for the poor but that he held the bag. He was the treasurer for the disciples. He held all the money in the bag, and he knew if that ointment could have been sold, there would have been more money in the bag, and then it said it was because he was a thief. He was stealing, embezzling money from the disciples on a continual basis. And it said he had religious words. Why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? But God said it wasn't... He that he cared for the poor, but that he was a thief. So we see that the poor bring out the worst and the best in us as human beings. And let's turn to John uh, Matthew chapter 11. And this is a very interesting part of Scripture. And uh, my wife and I have really taken to heart, you know, the persecuted church, Christians in prison and, and those types of things. I've visited underground churches in China and places like that. And been in many places that Christians have been beaten and killed for the gospel. One of our programs in, in, Bangla, uh, in Bangladesh, uh, 17 ministers have been killed in that one program by radical Muslims, murdered cut to pieces in front of their wives with swords and, and horrible deaths. So when we read something like what, when John was in prison facing, he knew it was going to be his death. You know, all, when we read these things personally, I start thinking of all these people we knew or people that we work with that face these types of problems. With John, uh, even though... He said, Behold the Lamb of God that cometh to take away the sin of the world. 
when you're down and out and facing something very difficult in your life, little time, little seeds of doubt sometimes creep into your life, you know. Why doesn't God hear my prayer? Why am I facing this trial? And John was no different. And as we look in this, uh, uh, these verses, I want to share with you some things. And it came to pass, verse 1, when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John had heard in prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he who should come, or do we look for another? Those words are almost hard to comprehend when you think of who John was, you know, preaching and preparing the way of the Lord. And all of a sudden, he's in this desperate situation. He said, I've got to know. I'm facing death. I've got to know if he's the one or do we look for another. And he sent two of his disciples out to Jesus and said, are you the one or do we look for another? It's hard when you really think about it. Hear this man that it was Jesus said was the greatest of all the prophets. He's at this desperate time in his life and he doesn't want to have made a mistake. He wants to know for sure whether the 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 work he God gave him was really for the right man, the right person. And the answer came back very amazing. Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John those things which you do hear and see. And this is how he wanted to prove who he was. He said, the blind receive their sight, and those are the poor. He said, the lame walk, those were the poor. He said, the deaf hear, those were the poor. He said, and the dead are raised up. And certainly they didn't have anything. And then he said, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. When John heard those verses, I can imagine when he heard those words back from his disciples, that John just started leaping for joy in that prison because he said, he's the one. And how did Jesus prove he was the one? It was how he related to the poor, the lame, the blind, the deaf, even the dead. And uh, and the, the gospel, the good news was preached unto the poor. And John, knowing the scriptures, and we won't have time to go to this, but it's an exact quote from Isaiah 35, verse 4 through 6, where Jesus was quoting a prophecy about himself and about how the lame, the blind, uh, and the, the deaf uh, would be healed. And uh, it was an exact quote. When John heard this, he says, Yes, Jesus is a genuine thing. He's a real thing. I, I can go to my death now rejoicing that I've accomplished what I was supposed to do to prepare the way for the Lord. And you see, the whole thing revolved around not with Jesus preaching to kings or miracles. It was how Jesus related to the poor, proved to John that he was the genuine Messiah, 
the one he had been waiting for, the one that he was preparing the way for. It was confirmed. You know, I often think when, when the poor meet us, it should be just like them meeting Jesus. Now that might sound like religious things, but if Jesus really lives in our heart, if we really ask Him to come in and be Lord and Savior, when the poor meet us, it should be just like meeting Jesus. And the poor flocked around Jesus, and they said because He preached good news to them. The poor don't have much good news. You know, they don't have any dividend checks coming in from the stock market. They don't have their retirement accounts building up. They don't have good news about much of anything. It's almost all bad news. But when Jesus was amongst them and preached the good news to them, you could see the people uh, come up out of that, that, that sort of a depression. They hear good news. This man has good news. He loves me. He cares for me. He knows my name. He he wants to help me, and uh, when no one else would. You know, God, all throughout the Scriptures, preserved the dignity of the poor. Now, this is a important aspect of God's character. And uh, if I had more time, I could develop this more. But I'll just share one story that we see it illustrated so well when Ruth and Naomi, you know, came back and Boaz had a field and he told his workers, you know, leave more grain on the ground and leave more grain because the gleaners are going to come out today and the, and the poor people are going to come out. And he knew of Ruth and, Bo, uh, and Naomi and he said uh, he wanted them to have an abundance of um, grain to take home to feed themselves. Now, Ruth and Naomi were not always poor. But what happened? Anyone tell me? How did they become poor? Their husbands died. No different than some of you ladies might be divorced and go into poverty of one form or another. Or a husband dies, the breadwinner dies. See, poverty is something that could touch any of us. You only have to look around the world and you can see a place like Sarajevo in, in, in Europe that once was a beautiful, prosperous city and due to the bombings, a lot of people lost their husbands, their, their brothers, the breadwinners and, and people were thrown into poverty overnight. It's the same around the world. Here these two ladies were in poverty and Boaz was referring his young men in the fields to come, you know, to leave more grain. And, and Leviticus told the people not to harvest the grain in the corner of their fields, to leave the grain for the gleaners. Now, it's very interesting. Why did God set up a system where the people, the poor, could come out and harvest the grain themselves, you know, after the, the harvest was done. I, I really believe it shows that God wants to preserve the dignity of man, of, of people in poverty. It could have been a big deal, you know, bring them out in, in front of the whole town and, and the rich 
landowners could have brought in sacks of grain and had a distribution center for the poor. And everybody would have seen the poor people come and have to ask for their food. But see, God looked at it saying, after the harvest, when you could slip into the field and fill your bags up and carry it home on your own shoulder and take it home and use it, at preserving your dignity, is the way God wanted this to be. And, and we see it throughout Scripture. We see it in Deuteronomy. He said, if a poor man is among you, you know, lend him money till he gets back on his feet. And uh, there's so many scriptures that intertwine like this uh, that we won't have time this morning to go into, but it shows us the character of God. And then one thing the video this morning showed us that with our program, we require that all the poor people that are helped with a project, whether it's farming or a small business or a store, uh, whatever it is, that out of their project profits, they tithe back to their local church, a full 10% of all the profits that they earn. Now, this is revolutionary thinking in, in missionary circles. I could tell you from my own experience, because I've shared this with lots of missionaries, and they said, we never thought of that. We always think the poor are poor, and they don't have much to give, so why require them to tithe? But the scripture is so clear, like in Malachi chapter 3, the, the one on tithing, that unless you bring your tithes into the storehouse, you're cursed with a curse. If you do bring your tithes into God's house, then God said, I will open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you'll not be able to receive. And we have seen this with thousands of families around the world when they began to give and give generously back to God out of their profits that their whole life is transformed. They really begin to understand what being discipled means, which uh, being also having Jesus as Lord of their life, even their money. And I, it's one of the reasons I have been with farms now for almost 30 years is because of this one little key part that the poor, in order to really come out of poverty, have to give their way out of poverty. And we have seen that over and over again, that it it works. It's God's principle. And I'll just share one story in closing. I was uh, asked to preach at a Bible dedication uh, conference in the Chittagong Hills of southern Bangladesh. Bangladesh is flat like a frying pan, except for way down in the south next to Burma, there's a stretch of land there that's all hills. And... There are dozens of different tribal groups there. And one of these groups had the Bible translated for them. And they had hiked out for this Bible conference, some of them three days and three nights from the border of Burma, hiking up and down these mountains to get to the conference. And we were in a, a place like this, a small place. And all there was about 400 people sitting on the floor. And they asked me to share about the ministry of farms with these uh, poor tribal people. These were the ladies with the big rings in their ears and the brass wrapped around their arms and the, and the men, you know, wearing their tribal dresses. And, and uh, these were very colorful tribal people. And they were excited about this New Testament that was just dedicated. And uh, I was sharing along about giving and stuff and, uh, you know, sharing about farms and then I read out of Malachi, will a man rob God? 
And all these people were very animated. They were all shaking their head. No, 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 no man would ever rob God. We'd never rob God. We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't, we love God. And I was watching them and I, I was sort of curious about their response and then I went on reading, but you have robbed me in tithes and offerings, saith the Lord. And you wouldn't have believed what happened. You know, there's 400 people out there. They all began to cry and weep and hang their head and say, Oh, we didn't know this was in God's Word. We didn't know that we need to give to God. We didn't know about tithing. We love God. We would never rob God. We we are going to give. We're going to give. And we're, they were all repenting. The missionaries couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe what I was seeing because when I preach about tithing, Americans don't cry. <laughs> but these tribal people were crying and bawling and repenting, saying, God, we didn't know this. We love you. We'd never rob you. And uh, from that day on, these people went back to their villages and a revival broke out in the hills of the Chittagong Hills and like 25 new churches were planted. People went from village to village sharing the gospel. They began to give generously and it, it totally revolutionized uh, these little tribal churches. There was about a hundred of them at that time. But it shows you with this illustration and what God says in His words that the poor are not exempt. It's a very fair thing. Uh, some of you maybe have heard Dr. Ben Carlson or Carson, the, the, the doctor from John Hopkins that spoke at the, the National Prayer Breakfast. And he says, why don't we just sort of follow what God does in the Bible? Everybody pay 10%. For taxes, he said, it'd be so much easier because the poor have, you know, they might make a hundred dollars a year. They pay ten percent. The rich man making a billion dollars a year will pay his ten percent. And he said, it just is a much more uh, fair system. He said, I'm not saying ten percent. He said, whatever. But here, a man of God, you know, actually shared these ideas from God's word because God was always fair. But he also didn't exempt anyone. And when we exempt the poor from giving, we do them a great disservice. Because then the windows of heaven aren't open for them. Well, I just thank you for the time here and the time I had to share with you and, and some of the things that I've been able to share. I hope help you understand more, you know, God's love for the poor, how he wants to bless you and how our relationship to the poor also uh, determines what God can do in our own lives. Thank you, and God bless you.